Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, society, science, and everything else. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of the forthcoming book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of Victories Greater Than Death, a young adult space opera novel coming out in April. Which is going to be really good. And this, yeah, it's going to be great. Your book is also really great. I know. We're going to discover lost cities and future civilizations together in our books. Yay. In this episode, we're going to be talking about innovations that will change reproduction and birth control among humans. This is a topic that bridges science fiction and science and politics and ethics. So we're going to be getting into all of those areas, but we're really going to try to focus it around innovations, like things that could change, things we could discover that would really transform the way we understand reproduction and birth control as a society and as individuals. Let's get started thinking about reproduction and the future. So, Annalie, what is a potential innovation with regards to birth control that could change things in the future? So one thing that I think is really interesting and that actually both of us talked about a lot when we were coming up with ideas for this episode, and that is birth control for people with sperm. And I should note that in this episode, Instead of trying to use terms like male and female, which are really messy and complicated and can mean a whole bunch of different things, depending on whether you're talking about society or science. So we're just going to talk about people with sperm and people with eggs. Okay, so, you know, and you can call them sperm people and egg people. You can call them, you know, PWEs and PWSs (laughs) if you like acronyms. So anyway, birth control for people with sperm has been kind of a problem for the reproductive health community for a long time because there's really only a few methods available for those people. Uh, There's condoms, there's vasectomy, there's the rhythm method, and there's withdrawal. And I'm sure there's others, but those are the four main ones. And I'm getting those categories from uh, an interesting paper that I read in the Journal of Biosocial Sciences from back in 2017 where a group of um, healthcare professionals kind of went over the data and did some surveys and figured out that basically those were the four methods that included participation from people with sperm. And in asking questions about what was being used in sexual encounters, they found that those methods are used 25% of the time 
regardless of how many times the person is actually having sex. So in other words, if you only have sex four times a year, one of those times they'll it'll, the birth control method will be something that relies on the person with sperm. And if you have sex a million times a year, 25% of a million will also be handed over to the person with sperm. So that means that <laughs> 75% of the time, people with eggs are the ones who are in charge of birth control, right? So, right. and there's a lot of different methods, you know, everything from hormonal methods to things like diaphragms or Norplant or, you know, surgeries, uh, sterilization surgeries. IUDs. IUDs. So it still means that people with eggs are doing the lion's share of thinking and purchasing and dealing with the messiness of having to set up birth control in order to have sex that could lead to conception. So people have been trying to come up with things like a male pill, uh, something that would be simple and easy. Um, and it's nicknamed a male pill because unfortunately out in the world, people do not <laughs> use our brilliant term, people with sperm. Right. <laughs> So researchers have been trying to come up with how could you have something for people with sperm that would be as simple as a pill, like as simple as the birth control pill. And there have been a number of different attempts. Um, one of the most interesting ones is coming from a researcher at UCLA, Christina Wong, who is working with a team to develop a hormonal pill, which is also a gel. So you can use it as a gel, like kind of rub it on your leg or rub it on your arm and, and your body can absorb it that way. It interacts with testosterone and it renders sperm havers temporarily infertile. So sperm people can become fertile again if they use this method, but while they're taking the pill or while they're using the gel, they wouldn't get people with eggs pregnant. There have been a lot of issues around developing a pill for people with sperm, partly, I think, because of that 25% number, which suggests that people with sperm are just less interested in taking responsibility for birth control, but also because the hormonal situation for people with sperm is a little bit different. Hormonal pills can interfere with the ability to get an erection, which some people think is really important. You know, not everyone does, but it's, it's one of the things that people like. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a feature and you don't want to interfere with it. But Christina Wong and her colleagues are in clinical trials for this gel and have seen very few side effects. So this is a possibility. I think that, you know, the more we have, um, you know, people who are in a position to actually conduct this research and actually, you know, have the power to run a clinical trial and and do this, you know, the more likely we are to see some kind of pill or gel for a sperm person to use so that the sperm person can take more responsibility for birth control. I think that would be a real change. And it's not just a technological change or a, uh, a medical change change, it's a social change. You know, it, mm -hmm. it changes the dynamic between an egg person and a sperm person having sex. Um, if you can have either person be able to have a rather simple method of, of birth control. So I like that idea a lot because I like the social effects. I'd love to see what the social effects would be. We know that the birth control pill had an enormous effect mm -hmm. on people who have eggs. And so maybe it would have a similar kind of effect on people who have sperm, um, just 
people feeling more empowered and more able to take responsibility. So I love that idea. I'm excited, excited for people with sperm to have their own birth control. Yeah. And I just feel like if we have a better conversation around this and a better understanding that it's both people, like assuming that there's two people involved and not more than two people, that there's, it's both people's responsibility to be concerned about this and to be in charge of this. And it's not something that we're going to just offload to the egg having people. I know the egg people are sick of your shit, sperm people. Exactly. (laughs) And I just, I think it's- Come on, sperm people. (laughs) I feel like the sperm people need to step up. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I keep thinking about uh, when we had Emily Willingham on a few episodes ago, and she just wrote this great book, Fallacy, about penises. And and one of the things she pointed out was that, you know, human penises are these like really soft, friendly organs. They're Mm -hmm. like actually not combat organs. They have no like spikes or bones like other animals. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, I feel like even though sperm havers may be able to get erections, there's also something really soft hearted about the the sperm haver. And that this I think that, you know, we we can delve more into that maybe if the sperm haver is has their own kind of birth control. Like maybe there's a kind of I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say that there's a way of reimagining what it means to be a person with sperm. And yeah, it I starts with taking responsibility uh, for birth control. Or it, yeah. it, maybe it ends think- with that. I don't know. Maybe that's in the middle. I think that, you know, maybe if people with sperm are more responsible for birth control, it will lead in a way to people with sperm feeling more responsible for child rearing and more nurturing and more just like every part of the process, including that's what I was trying to get at. Yes. You know, we'll just think about that organ and what it how it makes you a part of the reproductive cycle yeah. in a different it's way. It's a gentle, friendly organ. It's a caretaking organ. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> Let's very, revalue yes, that organ. Exactly. All right. So tell me about an innovation that you're really intrigued to see. You know, I mean, the thing I feel like that has been talked about a lot the last few years, especially that we're kind of in, in the very start of a conversation about is you know, more access to emergency contraception, medication abortion, and just like thinking about abortion differently in general. And I feel like access and having better conversations go hand in hand. Like, I feel like the more that we are able to talk about abortion in a kind of non-stigmatized fashion and kind of have real conversations about abortion and emergency contraception without this sense that it's something shameful or terrible. I feel like a lot of people have been really trying to push us in the direction of thinking about abortion differently and and speaking about it differently. And I think that we need to have more informed conversations about what we're talking about and like when does the fetus become something that we consider to have any sense of personhood. And this is a thing that we are really trying to debate as a society. And it's very difficult because you know, nobody will can agree on terms and like the bioethicists are all arguing amongst themselves. But I feel like there are experiments going on right now that are pushing us in a really good direction. Like there's been experiments in the last few years to have vending machines on college campuses that will dispense emergency contraception. You can already get emergency contraception in pharmacies without a prescription, like, you know, basically plan B, the morning after pill that works up to 72 hours after conception. But, you know, making it accessible in vending machines, you know, what if every bathroom had a vending machine with emergency contraception, not just in college campuses, but everywhere. And it was just a thing where it's like, oh yeah, okay. You know, nobody needs to know about this. I don't need to talk to a doctor. I can just do this. 
And, you know, we already have condom vending machines in a lot of places. So, you know, what if this was just a thing that we took for granted? And meanwhile, there have been some pilot projects in the last few years to have, you know, mail order delivery of, of medication abortions, which is the two pills that you can take up to I think, about 10 weeks post-conception. And there have been pilot projects with, you know, for example, you can have a telemedicine visit with a doctor, like which especially is, is useful during a pandemic. You can see a doctor over video chat and they will prescribe a pill and it will be sent to you in the mail. I just wanted to break in for a second and say, like, we are not medical professionals mm-hmm. and that we will true. put links to all of the stuff that we're talking about in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have access to any of these medications, talk to a doctor. (laughs) Yes, we are not medical professionals. We are not giving medical advice on this podcast. And any information we give, you should definitely double check for yourself because we are not, we do not have white lab coats or anything of the other cool. I I have a white lab coat. I, I am actually a doctor, but I am a doctor of culture, not of medicine. Right. So, you know, <laughs> slightly different. Yeah. Point I, is, we are I can not definitely, I can, in an emergency, I can analyze a movie for you, but uh, I can't. I can think of many pill. situations where that would be very useful. But anyway, so yeah, so that is a really important caveat that we probably should have mentioned at the start of the, the episode. But yes, not medical professionals. So basically, you know, there are all these experiments right now around greater access. And, you know, one of the two medication abortion pills recently became available as a generic, which made it more accessible as well. And I feel like we are moving in a direction where increasingly there are non-surgical options. And, you know, it's possible in 20 years we'll have better options for non-surgical abortions or better surgical options, too. We'll have better ways of terminating pregnancies or emergency contraception options, which are widely accessible. And this whole debate will no longer be quite as fraught as it has been. But, you know, right now we're just at the start of thinking about that. I think it does go hand in hand with being able to have a conversation about it, being able to remove the stigma around abortion and emergency contraception and, you know, remove this idea that it's something that we can't talk about or that is, you know, not allowed in our discourse. So I think really what we're talking about here is more access. Mm-hmm. You know, people with sperm having access to birth control that would be easier because it's just a pill you take or a gel you put on. People with eggs having access to different kinds of safe methods to terminate pregnancy. You know, what's interesting is that we have this tendency in our culture to believe that those kinds of changes start with technology or they start with some kind of scientific discovery and then they change the culture. Mm -hmm. But I feel like what you are saying is sort of the opposite, that we need to change our culture and to become more open about talking about birth control and abortion and that that might lead to greater access and greater availability of these kinds of technologies. I think it's both. I think that, you know, this is an area where technological and social change really go hand in hand. And you talked before about like when the birth control was introduced, it really kind of caused a social change and it caused a change to women's roles. I think that, you know, if there was a really successful and easy to use birth control method for people with sperm, it would change the cultural conversation in a way, and it would change how we think about men's roles, hopefully, really depend, or it might just be a thing that nobody wanted to use because 
men are like, that's not my department or whatever, says Verna von Braun. I don't actually think that's true, though, because that same study that I was talking about where right. they found that sperm havers are the ones participating 25% of the time in using birth control. In that same study, they found that when they asked people with sperm if they could have access to some kind of pill or gel, almost 50% said they would use it. So right. it's it's not, I, I think it that there's plenty of people out there with sperm who would be happy to be temporarily infertile if it meant that they could, you know, have reproductive sex without reproducing, you know? It would be obviously one less thing to worry about, you know? Yeah, exactly. I don't think anyone wants to have an unanticipated pregnancy, regardless of whether you're a sperm person right. or an egg person. An unwanted pregnancy is an unwanted pregnancy, and it's it's tough it's an emotionally tough situation regardless. And it's and it's can be an economically difficult situation too. So I think like to wrap up talking about birth control, really, I think the innovation that we'd like to see is something like sexual and reproductive health being just part of our everyday health system. Right. Whatever that is. So because I was thinking like, well, do we want to revamp the idea of sexual health clinics? Like, do we want to have like more abortion clinics, for example? And, and of course we do. But what we also want is for that kind of health care to just be part of health care. So mm -hmm. every year you get a reminder from your doctor to get a flu shot. And this would be like every year you get a reminder, like, here's the kinds of birth control available to you. Like, Anytime you need X, Y, and Z, like it's here for you. There's no difference. There's no like, you know, fear of talking about one and, you know, fearlessness about talking about the other. It's just like, it's all healthcare. And so I think that would be a huge innovation if we stopped kind of carving out sexual and reproductive health as if they were some kind of separate thing, like as if those parts of our body were somehow a whole other branch of, of medicine yeah. And of course, they are a medical specialty, but that's very different from being, you know, their own, needing their own special clinics and their own special, you know, rules. They should just be part of everyday health. Yeah. I always think about like angry black lady on Twitter. Her pinned tweet is abortion is healthcare. Basically, it's a slightly longer, but that's the the gist of it. And it's like, yeah, abortion is healthcare, and it's a it's a healthcare service. It should be treated like any other healthcare service. It should be part of your regular healthcare access. It shouldn't be a thing that we try to carve out into a separate category. Absolutely. Yeah, and when you get health insurance, it should just be covered. Oh yeah. Birth control for people with sperm and for people with eggs should be covered. Mm -hmm. And you know, and again, this is also bouncing off what angry black lady said, I mean, this is also the position that Planned Parenthood has always taken too, mm -hmm. is that this is just healthcare. And unfortunately, it's been kind of marginalized and ghettoized. And it just shouldn't be because it leads to a lot of really unhealthy situations. All right, we've solved birth control. <laughs> and, and reproductive, yeah. Um, we've solved birth control. So let's move on to talking about fertility and child mm -hmm. rearing, which is the other part of this puzzle. So Charlie Jane, tell me about an innovation that would transform how we approach fertility and or child rearing. 
You know, one thing that we talked about previously in our episode about technologies that could change the future was artificial wombs. And I feel like we should talk about that here again, because it's yes. such an important technology and it could actually make a huge difference if, you know, we could just basically have a baby without, you know, a human being having to carry it inside their body for, you know, nine months or however long. You know, artificial wombs could make a huge difference, I think, you know, and this is a very science fictional idea, which obviously does not exist in the real world yet. But I think it's something that eventually will be a possibility once we understand better, more about that, you know, reproductive system. I also think on a related note, the more we can do as a society to break down this idea of who is pregnant and who gets to be pregnant and what it means to be pregnant. And right now, you know, there is this assumption that women are pregnant and that men are not pregnant, which is something that has already been becoming less and less relevant as we've seen trans men get pregnant and non-binary people get pregnant. And, you know, pregnancy is no longer something that is gendered to quite the same extent. But I think that we could go a lot further in terms of thinking of pregnancy as something that is not just for one group of people or that doesn't denote a particular role in society or a particular kind of, you know, gendered expectation. And also a thing from science fiction that has not become a reality yet, but I think that it could eventually is people with sperm getting to be the ones who are pregnant and having it implanted in their bodies or creating a womb that they can carry on the inside of their bodies. And I think that that's the thing that, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger obviously got pregnant in that one movie. Um, <laughs> so he was paving the way for the rest of us. Don't forget John Ritter in Rabbit Test. How could I forget John Ritter? I mean, you know, <laughs> so important. So like John Ritter and Arnold Schwarzenegger have both been pregnant, which is good to know. You know, those are like basically... They're trendsetters. They are the two avatars of masculinity in our culture. So, you know, when you think, when you ask people on the street who represents American masculinity, they would be like John Ritter and Arnold Schwarzenegger, for sure. Right. You know, no no question. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, Annalie, what's, a, what's an innovation around fertility and child-rearing that you think could be, like, game-changing? So I was thinking a lot about this essay by Rebecca Onion in Slate from a few months ago, where she talks about the idea of paying people to be parents. And she's specifically talking about it in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, where so many people's kids are at home and they're struggling with how to do their jobs and help their kids do schoolwork and help their kids, if they're not in school, to just be kids and doing childcare. And it's become this incredible burden on many, many families. And there's been a number of economic studies that have shown that women are leaving the workforce because of this. So we're, our economy is shrinking because women are being kind of forced to go back to playing these older kind of housewife roles because that's just the most practical thing for the family to do during the pandemic. Um, and there's a lot of different stories about how this happens. And it's not, it's not simple. You know, it's not, it's not a kind of easy fix. But Rebecca Onion was saying like, you know, we could have an aid package that included money for families that have kids at home. Mm -hmm. And actually, although it sounds kind of futuristic, and she's talking about it in the context of this very new social problem, which is pandemic, 
This idea goes back decades in feminism, where especially in Europe, a lot of uh, socialist feminists had proposed in the 60s and 70s that maybe one way to achieve gender equity would be to grapple with the fact that housework and child rearing are labor. Mm -hmm. And if they're labor, they should be compensated. And so if we can compensate, and these were mostly women who were doing these jobs, if we can compensate them adequately, then two things will happen. One, families will be better able to support themselves. But two, and more importantly, we take seriously how much work goes into child rearing and how it is actually a very important job, worthy of respect, and worthy of compensation at rates that are similar to the way we compensate a man who's doing bureaucratic work or who's doing some kind of work that that we all recognize as legitimate and deserving of some kind of paycheck. This idea to me makes a lot of sense. I think it seems radical on its face, but once you think about it, it's actually just plain fair because mm-hmm. all of these people who are doing childcare, they're working their butts off. It's a hard damn job. And it's a job that's a 24-7 job. And without any kind of benefits or any kind of social acknowledgement of how difficult it is, that makes the job even harder. So I think that one of the things that we always forget about in discussions around fertility and the right to have children or the right to not have children is how much this is really about who's going to take care of the kids Mm -hmm. and how the kids are going to be taken care of. And this is like a very, in the United States, where we have a lot of politics around abortion, typically the people who are conservative and are against abortion are also against social services for people who are raising kids. Right. And my feeling is you have to have both. You have to have, you know, social services that provide family planning for people, that provide birth control, that provide pregnancy termination, but that also provide support if you want to keep your kid. And if you choose to keep your kid, if you choose to bring a pregnancy to term, then there needs to be some kind of social support that isn't just from your family and friends, but is actually the government or some other kind of agency that is coming in and paying for some of that labor. And because that that labor pays off, right? It's not like it's money going into a hole. Like those kids grow up and become productive workers. They become productive caretakers on their own. And it's the same idea behind paying teachers, for example. Uh, And I think that's another piece of this is that teachers and other caretakers, childcare workers uh, are often compensated in ways that are just disgustingly small, like they're given such disgustingly small salaries, considering how much work they're doing and how much public good they're doing. If you had some social reform uh, around the idea of compensating people who do childcare, that that could also lead to social reform around how we compensate teachers and other kinds of caretakers. Yeah. And I feel like there's a common thread here to a lot of what we're talking about, which is equity and this idea that like people with eggs are generally expected to shoulder the vast majority of the burden of, you know, birth control, control over fertility, and also child rearing. And that there's some idea that being a person with eggs 
means that you are destined to fulfill a certain role in society that goes way beyond just, you know, pregnancy, but includes pregnancy. And I think that a combination of new technology and new social attitudes could make it possible for people with sperm to take an equal role in every step of this process and that we would stop thinking of it as being something that's like mostly on one half of the population and not on the other half and that we would change the social meaning of our bodies in a sense to be something that's more equitable and i think that is a thing where technology can help a lot but it also has to go hand in hand with this conversation around child rearing as work being pregnant is in some ways work it's like it's you know it's totally work (laughs) and being responsible for whether or not there's going to be a baby is also you know work it's also something that we need to respect and distribute evenly and the other thing i wanted to mention really quickly is just you know getting rid of the taboos we talked about taboos around abortion and how it's there's all this stigma around talking about abortion but there's also weirdly a stigma around talking about infertility there absolutely is yeah and people who are infertile or who are having trouble conceiving or who are doing infer- infertility treatments are kind of not encouraged to talk about it because there's something weird and shameful about it, which is weird. You would think that either abortion or infertility would be stigmatized, but they both are. Why do you think that is? Well, I think some of it goes back to people who have eggs and everything that their bodies do is kind of off the table. It's marginal. It's something that's considered taboo to discuss. Any kind of healthcare for people with eggs specifically related to reproduction just becomes something that's unspeakable. I think that the taboos around infertility do take a slightly different shape. I think that there's a lot of rhetoric around what it means to be a woman and what it means to be feminine. And part of that, going back way, way, way in history, going back to the Bronze Age and before then. The Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, exactly, as we (laughs) talked about in an audio extra. You know, there's this idea that in order to be a real woman, you have to have babies. And I'm using the term woman very mindfully here, as I did a little bit earlier, because this is a a social construct. This is Mm -hmm. not a biological idea. This is like a social idea of what people who identify as women are told that they should want and they, and that they're told and what they're told that they should do. And so uh, many people who identify as women are ashamed when they can't have babies because they think it undermines their identity when in fact it's, it's just a little health problem, you know, Mm -hmm. and it should be treated as just a hiccup, you know, it's, I mean, it's a big hiccup. It's, it's a health problem and it has to be dealt with through medicine. It's something that's solvable. And we know that it's solvable now for most people. And there's all different ways to solve it, including things like adoption or fertility treatments or whatever. Uh, But yeah, I think that as much as you and I are asking for open discussions around abortion and birth control, we want open discussions around infertility and the difficulties of that different options for people, having a more inclusive conversation about that and like talking about all the different things that go into becoming a parent. Because sometimes the issue isn't fertility, the issue is economics or the issue is something social. And so all of that stuff, I think, needs to be 
part of a more open conversation and, and part of public policy. You know, I mm-hmm. think that's that's part of what we're talking about here. But I mean, just to circle back again to this, what you were talking about, about how we kind of change the social meaning of our bodies. I love that idea. And I feel like we're trying to do that a little bit here by mostly referring to people with sperm and people mm-hmm. with eggs, because I think once you start thinking of it that way, then you start to peel away a lot of your expectations about what does it mean to be a man or a woman and just start right. thinking about like, what are the actual mechanics here? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we how do we treat this as a health issue? How do we treat this as a technological problem or a health problem or a health solution? And it really is just about like, some people have one kind of plumbing, some mm-hmm. people have another kind of plumbing, and we have a lot of social expectations that arise from that. And so we need to change our social expectations by kind of looking afresh at our bodies and kind of, you know, thinking about like, well, what's really going on here? Oh, it's literally just eggs and sperm. Like, Mm -hmm. we can handle that. Like, that's, that's not a taboo. That's just, that's just some cells, man. (laughs) (laughs) Just biology. It's just a little biology. Um, So, when we come back, we're going to have a final conversation where we do a little world building and think about the future of reproduction for people with eggs, people with sperm, and everyone in between. Charlie Jane, we're going to rev up our world building. <laughs> I was like, before we recorded this episode, I was doing a lot of revving, and I thought we agreed that I was going to make the revving oh, noise, sorry. but I, I guess you really wanted excited. to also. I just, I just want to put that out there. Oh, okay. I feel anyway, like we should have like an equal division of our revving. Of labor. revving. You know what? I agree. I think that, you know, in the spirit of, of equity, um, we should do that. So what is our future going to look like? We've sort of talked about a lot of the ingredients. We want to have greater access. We want to have a a shift in the social meaning of our bodies. So what does that future world look like where, where some of these things have come to pass? Man, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of hard to imagine, but you know, I feel like it would be a world in which there would be different messages everywhere. Like you would see different kinds of advertising and you would see, like the healthcare establishment or like healthcare facilities would have, you know, include, you know, like you said earlier, they would include information and resources about fertility and emergency contraception and birth control and, you know, options for terminating a pregnancy. And it would just be like a matter of fact thing. And it would be like a thing that your doctor would be like, okay, you know, any, any plans to, have potentially reproductive sex and do you want to talk about that and like what what are your options for controlling your fertility or ensuring your fertility if that's what you want i feel like it would be a a world in which we would be much more matter of fact about these things and there would be a lot less kind of you know euphemism and kind of tiptoeing around it and a lot less it would be something that would be just sort of more in our pop culture in our kind of worlds ideally it would be something where you would be able to control your fertility with the least gatekeeping and the least kind of like having to deal with stressful situations possible. Like the, the, the more that it could be, you know, automated almost that you could just go talk to an AI about your fertility options if that's what you prefer, you know, something like that. And I think 
Or just the vending machine option. Like yeah, we were and the vending earlier. machine option for sure. If, if we're talking about like emergency contraception or like birth control, this would be a world in which we would have a better understanding of the endocrine system in general, which is something that we're still learning a lot about. And we would, you know, in addition to having easy, accessible birth control, it would be part of a strategy for like, okay, what kind of hormonal balance do you want to have in your body? Like, you know, it would be a thing where like, okay, do you want your hormones to be like more testosterone? Do you want it to be more estrogen? Do you want it to be more kind of progesterone? Like, how do you want your hormone? How do you want to feel in your body? And how do you want your hormones? Like, I feel like as a trans person, I'm very used to the idea that like hormones and like controlling the hormones I take in is not just a fertility issue, but it's part of my relationship to my body. And I feel like there could be a future where I'm just spitballing now. I haven't really, mm-hmm. I love you know, this. This is so interesting. I'm yeah. just spitballing now, but there could be a future where cisgender people too, even though they don't want to transition and they don't want to identify as the gender that they were assigned as birth, then might be like, you know what? I'd like a little less testosterone, or I would like to control my testosterone a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, or I would like to just have a slightly different balance of hormones. Yeah, what you were saying made me think that, I mean, because also hormones have to do with mood. And yeah. and I think in this future where we're viewing our bodies really differently, maybe you would have a doctor who was just in charge of your hormones um, or, you yeah, know, your general practitioner would be, yeah. And you would say like, yeah, um, I'm having some issues with anxiety and depression And also, I don't want to get pregnant. So what kind of concoction should I be taking? Um, And it wouldn't be, again, it wouldn't be segregated out like, oh, there's special hormones for people who have like gender and sex stuff and other hormones for people who have like mood issues or have like energy level issues. Um, It would all be just part of like a balanced breakfast of hormones. So I think that's a really interesting idea. So I could see two possible futures growing out of some of the topics that we've been talking about with greater access and with less stigma. Um, I think one avenue is definitely what you were describing, Charlie Jane, where everything becomes kind of automated and depersonalized. So birth control is just something you pick up at the drugstore when you pick up a box of cookies and some toilet paper. And that's just part of everyday life. You know, medicines for terminating pregnancy are similarly widely available. You know, we live in an era where a lot of stuff related to the bodies of people who have eggs have been prescription and have recently become non-prescription. Like, for example, I remember when medicines for yeast infections, you had to get a prescription oh for them. Oh, my God. And it's like you'd just be sitting there for a week with your coos on fire, <laughs> like oh, just no. itching and itching and itching, waiting for a goddamn doctor's appointment when you knew exactly what you needed to fix the problem. So now, you know, medications for getting rid of yeast infections are over the counter and you can get them anytime you want. That's insane. It's insane. But if you have eggs you know, shouldn't medicine really just be regulating every part of your freaking reproductive tract? I guess so. But we're looking toward a future where that has been deregulated. And and just because you have eggs doesn't mean that uh, the government and, you know, the medical industry get to regulate every part of you there. 
So I think there's that. And I, I could see that being one path. The other path I could see is um, a way that we are making the process of giving birth or terminating pregnancy into something that's a lot more therapeutic and that there's a lot more care and thought that goes into that. So for example, right now we have places that people can go to have children where you know, they have a doula and they they give birth in a room that's kind of just like a bedroom and it has like mm-hmm. soft lighting and and it's adjacent to a hospital. So if anything goes wrong, of course, you know, you can have medical professionals come in. But the place where you're actually giving birth, your family can be there. You can have soft music. It feels very homey and, and nice. And I could imagine in this future something similar for people who want to terminate pregnancies or who want to learn more about birth control and that we extend that same kind of care and emotional caretaking to people who are struggling with questions around pregnancy and reproduction. And that it isn't just for people who are giving birth, it's it's also a way of taking care of people who, when they're having an abortion, might be feeling a little scared or might be feeling sad and absolutely deserve the same kind of warm environment to reassure them. And so I guess what I'm saying is that some of these trends could result in in two very different ways of mm-hmm. handling reproduction. You know, one that's very depersonalized and very kind of just stripped of all Matter of fact. Yeah, very matter of fact. And one that is, you know, really almost like, you know, new agey in a sense, <laughs> like, you know, that, that's that's sort of based around like the ideals of, of, of a therapeutic culture. And there's there's no rule that says you can't have both. You know, For you sure. can have a more thera- a therapeutic approach right alongside a very matter of fact and pragmatic approach. I think that would be the, the matter of factness and the kind of like, well, you can just get it done on your own time in your own way. But if you are trying to terminate your pregnancy after a certain point or in a certain way, here's this nice alternative where you can go and there's candles and soft music and like someone massages your feet. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that, you know, that goes along with the idea of a world where, you know, maybe there are artificial wombs, maybe there's like, everybody can get pregnant and everybody can choose not to be pregnant and everybody can control their fertility. And it's basically just like not a thing. It's a thing we all have in common. And it's a thing that, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we're having a baby. Oh, who, which one of you is having a baby or, oh no, is it, is it one of you or is it your robot? You know, like, it's just like, if you, if you have a friends who are a married couple, you would just be like, okay, oh gosh, well, did you decide which one of you is going to be carrying the baby? And also you can have, you can have babies that have genetic material from three parents. Right. So it doesn't have to just be two parents. Yes. And I think this also goes hand in hand with a lot of the stuff we were talking about in regards to child rearing as well, because when pregnancy is uh, something that anyone can experience, then child rearing starts to also be something that everyone participates in, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can have, you could have two parents, you could have five parents. The point is that child rearing gets revalued as something that's really important labor. It's it's hard work. Mm -hmm. It's important. It deserves recognition and compensation. It's something we take very seriously. And 
it's something that's also fun in a new way too, because it's not a burden. It's something that's becomes an honor and something that is, um, like I said, widely recognized as valuable. Yay. So, okay, there's our utopian world. Nice. We've got better hormone regime. We have therapeutic clinics for pregnancy termination, and we have equitable childcare. And we leave it up to you guys to write the stories that are set in that world and Please. write the stories about how we get to that world because we need as many stories as possible about that. Uh, I was racking my brains to come up with an example of a science fiction story that has a positive representation of terminating a pregnancy. And I could not come up with a single one. Man. We need it. We definitely need that. Yes. Plenty of plenty of really negative, scary representations of terminating a pregnancy, but nothing nothing good. Nothing where it's ever portrayed as like, oh, you're you're having a tough time. We're gonna rub your feet and you're gonna go through this <laughs> and it's gonna be fine and the community still loves you and you're a good person and like this just wasn't your time yet. But you know, next time maybe it will be your time. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I would love to I do more too. utopian, you know, stories about all of this stuff. Like, I feel like there was like a some of it in the 70s, but, you know, there was like a whole strand, a wave of feminist science fiction in the 70s that included like, you know, Marge Piercy and people like that kind of speculating about some of this stuff. But I feel like we definitely need more of that now, for sure, more than ever. Yeah. Hell yeah. And especially stories that embrace like, all of the choices that you can make about reproduction, you know, that like allow for many, many pathways through reproduction. So, all right. Well, thanks so much for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. This has been a really interesting conversation and you can, you know, you can find our podcast wherever fine podcasts are, are podcasted, are birthed. <laughs> <laughs> You can go to the podcast birthing clinic. <laughs> um, there, you know, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you would leave us a review. You can find it on Stitcher. You can find it in like some kind of dank hole where they just pile podcasts up like willy nilly. Um, oh. You can support us on Patreon, please. Uh, we're on Patreon.com/slash Our Opinions Are Correct. If you become a patron, you get lots of essays and writing prompts, and we will reveal to you our works in progress. Um, we'll send you free books. It's great. It's a good deal. Um, you can find us on Twitter at OOACpod. And thank you so much to our producer, Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission. And thank you to Chris Palmer for the music. And thank you for supporting us and for listening. So we'll talk to you in a week or so. Bye! Bye.